This EHIV Review Podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. It's likely that the syndrome of long COVID is related to a persistent dysregulation of immune responses to SARS-CoV-2 infection rather than an active viral replication. For this reason, antiviral therapies and monoclonal antibodies that neutralize the virus may not play a significant role for patients dealing with PASC. COVID-19, the morbidity, mortality, risk. Welcome to EHIV Review. What do we know about how COVID-19 affects people living with HIV? Is their risk of becoming infected higher than in people without the disease? Are the vaccines and boosters as effective? Do people living with HIV experience more breakthrough infection? Are they more susceptible to long COVID? That's what we're here to talk about today with Diane Cangelo, a nurse practitioner and nurse manager of the Infectious Disease Clinical Research Unit at Mass General Hospital. For her disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, ehivreview.org, and select the Volume 7, Issue 8 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Diane Cangelo, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Bob. I'm delighted to be here today. We've got a lot to cover, so let's start right in with our first learning objective, which is to discuss recent research data evaluating COVID-19 mortality risk and vaccine immunogenicity in people living with HIV. So take us to the clinic, if you would, please, Diane, with a patient scenario. Today, we have a 26-year-old male with well-controlled HIV who's adherent to his ART regimen. He has completed his two-dose primary series of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. After his second dose, he reported feeling significantly fatigued with chills and myalgia, which has led him to take a day off from work. He was concerned about his reaction and doesn't feel a booster would be a good idea. He had significant reactions to his second vaccine dose, and now he's reluctant to get boosted. That sounds like a valid concern, and I'm sure this patient is not alone in his hesitancy. How would you approach the conversation with this patient about the need for a booster? I would begin by acknowledging his concerns and validating his symptoms. I want to explain to him that the vaccine works by mimicking natural infection by presenting a piece of the virus, in this case the spike protein, to the immune system. The antibodies and the T-cells develop against the spike protein, which then provides protection against disease caused by infection from the actual virus. So the symptoms he is feeling, while unpleasant, represents a robust immune response and a sign that the vaccine is doing its job. I would also note that the COVID-19 vaccine boosters are great for everyone, but even better for him since people living with HIV are at higher risk for severe disease. Well, are people living with HIV at higher risk of severe COVID disease? Uh, Talk about that a little more, if you would, please. For instance, in an article I reviewed for the newsletter, Yang and colleagues looked at nearly one and a half million adults with confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infections across 54 clinical sites among which were over 13,000 individuals with HIV. After matching cases to controls, such as those without HIV, based on age, gender, and comorbidities, the authors found that people living with HIV infected with SARS-CoV-2 had 20% higher odds of being hospitalized and 29% higher odds for mortality. So within the cohort of those living with HIV, severe disease and mortality were higher in those with CD4 counts, less than 200 cells per microliter while those who were virally suppressed, which is defined as less than 200 copies per ml, had lower risk of hospitalizations, but not mortality. They also found that Black and African-American individuals with HIV 
had more than double the risks for both severe disease and mortality, highlighting the extra care and effort we must dedicate to this population. In addition to higher risk for more severe outcomes, there are also studies that suggest COVID-19 vaccine responses in people living with HIV are not as robust when compared to those without HIV. For instance, in another article I reviewed by Spinelli and colleagues, they evaluated the immunogenicity of the BNT162B2, which is also referred to as the Pfizer COVID vaccine, and mRNA1273, which is the Moderna vaccine, among people living with HIV. The studies utilized samples collected in May 2021 from 100 individuals living with HIV and 100 individuals without HIV. They matched for demographics, time since second vaccination, and type of mRNA vaccine. The authors found that people living with HIV were less likely to have functional neutralizing antibodies, as well as lower level anti-spike IgG titers when compared to individuals without HIV. The most important predictor of vaccine response was CD4 T-cell count, where each 100-cell increase was associated with a 36% increase in the odds of functional neutralizing antibody response. It's also interesting that they found recipients of the Moderna vaccine had a 5.5-fold higher odds of having a functional neutralizing antibody response compared to those who received the Pfizer vaccine, though the sample size was small and shouldn't be used to draw any broad conclusions. Let's bring this information back to your conversation with the patient. What are the most important things you'd want to communicate? All in all, I would highlight to the patient that the benefits of having a COVID-19 vaccine booster may be even more beneficial in our patients living with HIV than the general public, given that lower vaccine response is seen in this population and the more severe outcomes are also seen when they get infected. I'd also want to note that being fully protected from COVID-19 through primary and booster vaccinations has a lot of benefits to our society. The higher the number of individuals who are boosted, the closer we get to reaching herd immunity, which keeps our society open and as well as protects those who can't mount an immune response. And finally, I'd want to discuss a game plan on how to manage his vaccine symptoms ahead of time, such as taking the booster towards the end of his work week to help minimize the number of days he would need to take off to recuperate. This could also help him set his expectations and feel empowered to take the steps needed to mitigate the transient impact it may have on his life. I want to ask you a what-if question, Diane. What if, after this conversation, he still declines the booster and he asks you about other ways to prevent severe disease? What do you tell him? I would respect his decision and congratulate him for already taking the steps needed to protect himself by completing his primary series and continuing to control his HIV. I would then focus on educating him about harm reduction practices, which can include limiting time in areas that are crowded or areas with poor ventilation where people are not wearing masks, washing his hands frequently, and getting tested if he has any symptoms or plans to be in contact with people who are immunocompromised. Frequent testing helps identify people who are early in their COVID-19 infection at a time they're most likely to transmit to others. It also increases the chance that antiviral treatments are most likely to have a positive impact. I would also want to gauge his level of hesitation and address any other barriers, such as an inability to take off a day of work, and let him know that he can come back to ask more questions and that it's completely okay to take the time he needs to think this through further. I also want to make sure I provide him with any kind of vetted resources, such as from the CDC, WHO, or the Infectious Diseases Society of America. And he can read this online and really try to further educate himself. Well, thank you. Now let me throw another what if at you. What if he decides to take the booster? Would he still be at risk for breakthrough infection? The short answer to this question is yes. 
The CDC and many research groups have noticed this since the Delta wave took off last summer and show that vaccination doesn't necessarily protect against breakthrough infection. That was also the case with Omicron as well. One article I reviewed in my newsletter by Coburn and colleagues performed a large study evaluating breakthrough infections after primary doses in 32,000 individuals living with HIV and matched two to one to those without HIV in the winter of 2020. The main takeaway is that breakthrough infection was overall uncommon at that time at roughly 2%, but the incidence was significantly higher in those individuals with HIV by 2.8% versus 2.1% in those without HIV. What I found interesting in this study is that after adjusting for important confounders like demographics, vaccine type, time since completion of the vaccine series, and prior COVID-19 infection, the rate of breakthrough infections differed by vaccine type. Those who received the Moderna vaccine had the lowest incidence at 26 per 1,000 person years, followed by Pfizer at 40 per 1,000 person years, and lastly by the Johnson Johnson vaccine, which had an incident of 59 per 1,000 person years. Among people living with HIV, younger age, age group from 18 to 24 years old, was associated with increased risk, and older age, 55 to 74 years old, was associated with a decreased risk. Prior COVID-19 infection was also associated with higher rates of breakthrough infection, although this may reflect increased exposure to the virus rather than inherent susceptibility from prior infection. One final question on COVID breakthrough. The reason that people living with HIV might be showing higher breakthrough diagnoses is because they interact with the healthcare system on a more regular basis. And this is something that's been raised by a number of different sources. Tell us, what does the data say? The higher rates of breakthrough infection could reflect higher rates of diagnosis due to, or at least in part, differences in healthcare-seeking behavior in people living with HIV. However, overall, the data does suggest that people living with HIV are at higher risk for breakthrough infection than the general public. There have not been any studies looking at rates of breakthrough infection in people living with HIV during the Delta or Omicron waves yet. However, it's really important to discuss with the patient that while breakthrough infection may occur primary and booster vaccinations have continued to provide very good protection against severe disease. This is supported by the fact that while the numbers of cases of Omicron skyrocketed this past winter, rates of hospitalization were far lower than in previous waves, largely due to the presence of vaccine protection. So ultimately, I would say breakthrough infections can occur, but boosters offer additional protection above primary vaccination, which helps reduce the chance of hospitalization and death. This is especially important for individuals living with HIV. Well, thank you, Diane, for leading us through this very interesting conversation. Let's review what we've been talking about in light of our learning objective, discuss recent research data evaluating COVID-19 mortality risk and vaccine immunogenicity in people living with HIV. What are the key things our listeners need to know? The key things I'd highlight is that people living with HIV are at higher risk for poor clinical outcomes from COVID-19 infection including hospitalization and mortality when compared to those who are HIV negative. Earlier studies performed in the beginning of the pandemic did not show any differences, so these larger and more recent studies represent a change in our thinking. And vaccine responses in people living with HIV are attenuated relative to people living without HIV, with a higher likelihood of non-response occurring with their lower CD4 counts. This is another reason why booster injections may be particularly important in this population, and it highlights another reason for maintaining viral suppression with ART. Breakthrough infections can occur despite vaccination and boosting. Overall rates are low at just 2% to 3%, but higher in people living with HIV. 
Importantly, vaccine protection against severe clinical disease remains intact based on published data. And lastly, there may be differences between vaccines in terms of the level of immune responses they generate in people living with HIV and the degree to which they protect against breakthrough infection, with Moderna vaccine generating the highest level of functional antibodies and lowest rates of breakthrough infection. However, these are based on small sample sizes, so therefore more in caution and interpretation. Well, thank you, Diane. And we'll return with Diane Congelo from the IDCRU at Mass General in just a moment. Health equality, and in particular racial disparities in healthcare, has become a growing concern and with good reason. The evidence shows that African Americans are disproportionately impacted by HIV, with new HIV diagnosis rates eight times higher than whites. Prescriptions for PrEP also lag behind. What are the barriers to HIV treatment equality, and how can we overcome them? One step towards that answer is Fade Out HIV, an on-demand webinar hosted by Dr. William King, a Los Angeles primary care physician known nationally and internationally for his work in HIV-AIDS and his research on racial disparities and access to HIV care and treatment. The CME-accredited Fade Out HIV webinar is provided by DKB Med in partnership with the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, supported by Gilead Sciences, and is free of charge. Visit fade.dkbmed.com to watch the on-demand video. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. Our guest is Diane Congelo, a nurse practitioner and nurse manager of the Infectious Disease Clinical Research Unit at Mass General in Boston. We've been talking about COVID-19 mortality risk and vaccine immunogenicity in people living with HIV. I'd like to turn now to our second learning objective. It's about PASC, P-A-S-C, that's post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection, also called long COVID. And our learning objective is to describe the potential implications that PASC may have on people living with HIV, as well as on the general public. So with that in mind, if you would please, Diane, take us to the clinic with another patient scenario. Sure. We have a 65-year-old female with HIV, hypertension, and type 2 diabetes. She was diagnosed with COVID-19 after she developed a cough, fatigue, fever, and shortness of breath. She went to the emergency department and was monitored for supportive care for two days. She denies receiving any COVID-19 vaccine. She presents today for routine HIV follow-up three months after her hospitalization with ongoing cough and fatigue. Given her recent history of COVID-19 and her continued symptoms, what would be your initial approach to diagnosing this patient? Would PASC or long COVID be high on your list? I'd first want to evaluate her for other infectious or non-infectious causes for continued cough and fatigue. Other ideologies for her symptoms include COPD, heart failure, or a lung abscess as a consequence of a pneumonia with COVID-19. We're also seeing an increased number of fungal pulmonary infections occurring with and after COVID-19. So the workup would include chest imaging, basic laboratories, and a sputum culture if it's appropriate. If no other causes are found, PASC would rise high on my differential. The primary reason being that she's an individual with a history of a COVID infection with comorbidities and hasn't been vaccinated. We've started to signal from recent studies, such as a 2022 report in the journal Cell, which found that those with COVID RNA viremia may be at more at risk for long COVID. I would also want to discuss vaccination, that even though she's had COVID, she would still be a candidate for vaccination. Currently, there isn't any substantial data to support vaccination to be used as a form of treatment, 
but this could help her to stay protected for a standardized duration from any reinfection. Talk to us, if you would please, about your initial management approach. In terms of management, the mainstay of treatment is supportive care, plus specialty referrals for any significant worsening of their symptoms. It's likely that the syndrome of long COVID is related to a persistent dysregulation of immune responses to SARS-CoV-2 infection, rather than an active viral replication. For this reason, antiviral therapies and monoclonal antibodies that neutralize the virus may not play a significant role for patients dealing with PASC. It's also not known yet if whether anti-inflammatories or vaccination has a role in management of these patients. But the exciting news is that there are several studies looking into this, such as the RECOVER study, which is an NIH-funded study. The goal is to answer many of these questions around prevalence and risk factors to help facilitate better management of PASC. I'm hopeful that it'll give us more data and tools we need to help our patients with this unfortunate complication. I'd also want to use this patient's visit as an opportunity to discuss vaccination and emphasize that not only is she a candidate to receive the shot, but the combination of natural infection and vaccination is thought to provide protection that's even better than either one on its own. However, as I mentioned earlier, there's no rigorous data to support the use of vaccination as a form of treatment for PASC. And as always, I would encourage her to continue to maintain good adherence of her ART, as this will help her immune system remain at its baseline function. What else have you been seeing with long COVID? For patients being considered to have PASS, they have to have a defined constellation of symptoms for at least a month or more since their time of infection. The symptoms fall broadly into four different buckets. Such as? Such as neurological findings that include brain fog, such as trouble thinking and concentrating, mood changes, and peripheral neuropathy. Cardiopulmonary symptoms are also one, which includes a persistent cough or heart palpitations. Then there's gastrointestinal symptoms, which include non-bloody diarrhea and stomach pain. And finally, just a grab bag of other symptoms, such as generalized fatigue, myalgia, arthralgia, and nonspecific rashes. How common are these symptoms in people with long COVID? There's very little data at present to say for certain how often patients with COVID infections end up with PASC. The CDC notes that the frequency of long-term symptoms can vary widely from 5% to 80%. That's a huge gap. However, it provides an early signal that we can use with appropriate caveats in our discussions with our patients. As I mentioned before, future studies like the RECOVER study will fill in an important gap in our knowledge with regards to PASC. While it's not focused on people living with HIV, I'm hoping that enough of our patient population will be included in the study so that we can extrapolate the findings and recommendations to our patients. What does all this mean to our patient and to others like her to people living with HIV? What do we know about the known risks for long COVID in this population? This is a great question, which unfortunately has even less data to answer it. Theoretically, we know that HIV leads to dysregulation of the immune system, so there may be a possible interaction with the long COVID syndrome. However, in terms of actual data, I was only able to find a single small observational study from India that looked into the prevalence of PASC in people living with HIV. The study enrolled 94 patients, all of whom were virally suppressed and consistently taking their ART. The prevalence they found was 44% within their center, though they lacked a control arm, which doesn't allow us to see how this compares to people without HIV. The study was also done prior to the rollout of vaccination. The authors performed a multivariant logistical regression to assess the impact of various factors on the odds of PASC. 
The covariance included demographics, HIV-related characteristics such as CD4 count and HIV viral load, though everyone should have been virally suppressed, and severity of COVID-19. The results show that only moderate to severe COVID-19 infection was associated with having PASC, with an adjusted odds ratio of 4.7. Interestingly, they did not find any association with HIV characteristics, such as CD4 count. A recent preprint by Spinelli and colleagues in a different cohort suggests that rates of PASC may be even higher in people living with HIV compared to the general public. That provides important corroborating evidence. It's clear that larger studies with control arms and careful follow-up will be needed to investigate this topic further and see if there's any differences in the incidence or management of PASC in our HIV patients. Thank you, Diane, for bringing us this case in discussion. Let's review our conversation through the lens of our learning objective. Describe the potential implications that PASC or long COVID may have on people living with HIV and the general public. What are the most important things our listeners should take away from our discussion? I would highlight that PASC or long COVID is an area of intense study for which data is currently lacking both in general population and even more so in people living with HIV. The current literature widely varies when reporting the prevalence of long-term symptoms from that 5 to 80%, which gives us more incentive to develop larger population-based studies with control arms. The common symptoms of PASC fall into four categories, neurological, cardiopulmonary, gastrointestinal, or other general symptoms. PASC is currently managed with supportive care and specialist referral if symptoms are worsening. There's no data to support the use of antivirals, monoclonal antibodies, immunomodulators, and vaccination for the treatment of PASC. Although we don't know whether vaccines offer protection against PASC, I would still encourage patients to get vaccinated after a COVID-19 infection, as the two together provide the most robust protection possible. From the Infectious Disease Clinical Research Unit at Mass General, nurse practitioner Diane Cangelo, thank you for joining us for this EHIV Review Podcast. Thank you, Bob. It's truly been a pleasure. For EHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehiv.dkbmed.com. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Janssen, and Vive Healthcare. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EHIV Review is copyright, with all rights reserved, by DKP Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.